Is this on? Can you hear me? Okay. Good morning, everyone. As we say in Watu, Buonanaro. Buonanaro. It's good to be here this morning. Wow, this is really fancy. Whoops. spend the next 10 minutes fixing that. Um, <clears throat> let's pray before we begin. I always want to begin preaching with giving it to God because this is not about me or, or you and I. It's about Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you through your son Jesus. And I've been speaking last week and speak this week about your identity, Jesus, and who you are. It is the foundation and core of our faith. We believe in you. I just surrender myself to you right now. I am a weak vessel. I have so many faults and sins, Lord, that I struggle with week in and week out, Lord. And I don't deserve, Lord, the salvation that you've given me. None of us, Lord, deserve that salvation which you have given us, which you have saved us from sin and death. We thank you for that. I surrender myself to you and just ask that these words would be your words, not mine. You'd speak into people's hearts and your Holy Spirit would be present this morning. And Father, that we would truly understand something of you and your word. Pray that whatever I speak that's not true, Lord, you'd help people to forget that, Lord. But to remember only what is true. We trust you. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Okay, pop quiz. What did I preach on last week? For those of you who are here. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> that's the right answer, Jesus. <laughs> I preached on the Son of God, Jesus being the Son of God. Can someone quickly tell me, what did I conclude that Son of God means? That's all right. You can raise your hand. Alex. He's part of the Trinity. He's always been the Son of God from all eternity. A lot of people in Christianity misunderstand this term Son, and they think it's referring to some sort of like a reference to Jesus being born of Mary. And it's a, it's a simple and understandable misunderstanding that he's always been the Son of God from all eternity as a, as a member of the Trinity. And then what that Son of God refers to, can someone tell me? Specifically, Son of God means king. In the Old Testament scriptures, we saw that kings were considered sons of God because they derived their authority from a God, the, fa the Father. So Solomon was a son of God, and God was his father. David was a son of God, and God was his father. So this term, son of God, is just simply an ancient Middle Eastern term to refer to kingship. So Jesus was never son of God genetically from the father. He was always son of God in a matter of rank with the father. The father is emperor, high king. Jesus is king underneath the father. That's what son of God means. We saw that he's equal with God because I talked about the Trinity. And at the same time, he was, became a human being, and so in a sense, he was not equal with God in, as a human being, but he was equal with God as a member of the Trinity. I explained the Trinity with some analogies, and it's a very confusing, hard topic. We can only go so far in explaining it because Scripture doesn't reveal anything further. But Jesus came from the Trinity and is a member of the Trinity and is equal with God in every respect. And, but he came as a human being. 
And this is what I'm going to talk about this week. Last week, we looked at his divinity, how he acted as in his divine nature on earth, the miracles he performed, the things he said that proved that he was God in human flesh. Today, we're going to look more at his humanity. Very important. And then I'm going to segue straight into the gospel, what we know as the good news of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus became a human being for a very specific reason in order to save us. And so this is the core of our faith. We need to understand why he became a human being and how he was human. So Jesus put, took a specific title upon himself while he was on earth. He, called, he went by Son of God as well as a term Son of Man. Son of Man. Now, I'll admit that in my growing up years as a Christian, I never really understood this term. What is, what is he talking about, Son of Man? I found that as I studied scripture more, it became clearer to me that this term is, is simply referring to a, a famous passage in Daniel 7, which all the Jews at that time in Israel, at the time of Christ, knew this passage, and they wondered about it. It was a prophetic passage that talks about a son of man. And it's, a, it's a really cool imagery, and so a lot of people <laughs> wondered, who is the son of man? So let's look at this, Daniel 7. Verse 13, it says, and I'm sorry if I speak quickly, it's just kind of my personality. <laughs> I try to go a little slower, but I don't want to run out of time here. He says, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is a wonderful passage. Daniel sees this human being coming with the clouds of heaven up to the Ancient of Days, the Father, the throne of God. This is, the imagery in this verse is very much he's entering into the royal, before the royal presence of God, before the throne of God. He says, I saw someone like a son of man. This is simply a Hebrew figure of speech referring to someone like a human being. He looked like a human being. And he was on the clouds of heaven ascending to the throne of God. He's presented before the Ancient of Days, the Father, and he's given a kingdom, an everlasting dominion. This shall never pass away. So this human that Daniel sees, everyone's wondering, what, is, what does this mean? Who is this human being? And they understood it to refer to the Messiah. But it seems very clear that as this human being is presented before the throne of God, he's given all authority from the Father which means he's equal with God. So there's, there's this human being who receives this everlasting perfect dominion from the Father. And that's what Son of Man simply means. So Jesus takes his title upon himself in his ministry and calls himself Son of Man. Who do you say the Son of Man is, he says. And his disciples start theorizing, oh, some say it's Elijah, some say it's... Because there was lots of theories at that time of who it was. And Jesus takes his title upon himself and says, no, I'm that Son of Man that... Daniel refers to. 
I'm that human being that is, will ascend to the throne of God and receive that everlasting dominion. So how does Jesus get there? We saw last week that Jesus is a member of the Trinity. He was from all eternity. He was equal and, and one with God in all majesty and glory. Then he becomes this human being, and then he ascends back to the throne of God. This is what we would call his journey of humiliation. How, or some people in theology say his condescension to humanity. God condescends to humanity. He becomes a human being. We're going to look at a very, very famous passage in Scripture, which many Christians know about. And to be honest, I actually didn't know about this passage for a long time when I was growing up in the faith. This talks about Christ's journey of humiliation, becoming a human being. Philippians chapter 2. Again, like I did last week, I would like it if you are able to rise as we read this passage because this is, this, I just would like to respect Christ Jesus in this as we read this because this speaks so much truth about him. If you are able, if not, it's okay, you can remain seated. Philippians 2, verse 6 through 8. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's look at this passage. Let's try to understand it. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, we need to latch onto this word form to understand this verse. He was in the form of God. This word form in Greek is simply referring to the physical appearance of God. We see in Old Testament scripture what this form of God was, was the Shekinah glory, what in Hebrew they call Shekinah. It's the glory of God. His light, his infinite majesty, his what Paul later refers to in, I believe it was 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, he calls it the inapproachable light that God dwells in. This is the form of God. It says God is light. So Jesus was in this form from all eternity. He was in that majestic form. He appeared throughout the Old Testament as this angel of light, as this, the pillar of fire and the cloud to the Israelites. He was majesty incarnate. <laughs> he was in the form of majesty. This is the form of God. So though he was in this form, Philippians says, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now for those of you who um, follow the King James Version, King James translates this slightly differently, understandably so. It says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And this may sound different than that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The way King James translated it, it says it doesn't, he's basically saying he didn't think it was wrong to remain equal with God. The way other translations translate it, it's basically saying he didn't want to hold on to that equality with God. These are two very different meanings. I, I went and I looked at what the Greek is, is saying and it's ambiguous. It can be translated either way. 
But as a Bible translator, I just wanted to give you that tidbit to understand that this passage can go either way. But regardless of which way it is translated, it doesn't actually take away from the meaning of this passage. Because if Jesus didn't think it was wrong to hold on to equality with God, he obviously claimed as he was on earth that he was equal with God. And so King James would have it accurate. Other translations like the ESV, which I follow, says that it's saying that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, if this translation is accurate, which it may or may not be, then it basically means that he didn't consider equality with that majestic form of God something to be grasped. It's not saying he's, he wants to be free of all equality with God because he very clearly claims to be equal with God while he's on earth. He says, I, am the, I and the Father are one. So this passage, if it's translated this way, do not, he didn't want to hold on to that equality with God. It's regarding the equality of his majestic form not the equality of all, of all things that constitute God, because this passage very, talk, very much talks about the form of God. It says then, he emptied himself by, how did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself of that glory, that form of God, and became a human being in the form of a servant, in the form of one of you and I. That's how he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of everything because we saw very clearly last week that he very much has divine abilities and powers while he was on earth. So this emptying is an emptying of his glory. And then we see later on that Jesus asks in John 17 to receive that glory back. He asks the Father in that famous prayer, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is essentially asking for that glory back as he's about to essentially accomplish what Daniel saw, ascend to the Father and receive that glory back. Okay, so he empties himself. He takes on the form of a servant, and he's born in the likeness of men. So he becomes, he takes on the form of a human by being born a human. He didn't just show up as some ghostly phantom phantasm, whatever, however you pronounce that, didn't show up as some sort of form of a human being, just appeared as one. But he showed up by being born one. He literally, he literally became one of us. And in human form, in flesh and blood, not in the divine form, but in human form, he humbled himself by subjecting himself to death, to mortality and death as we experience it. See, if Jesus had shown up in divine form, do you think that he would have been able to accomplish his work? If Jesus showed up in the blinding and approachable glory of Shekinah glory of God, how would we have been able to respond to him in the same way? Would he have been able to save us from our sins by dying for us? Would we have been able to kill him? No. There's a very specific reason Jesus emptied himself of his glory. Because he had a work to accomplish that only he could do if he appeared just as one of us. He didn't want to come with some sort of physical advantage where we would act differently around him. So let's look at this. What was Jesus like? The scripture gives us very clear indications of what Jesus was like as a human being. 
Isaiah 53, you all know this passage. Isaiah 53, 2, verse 2. says that he, he's talking about the Messiah, Christ, grew up before him, the Father, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. Notice he doesn't have that form or majesty of God that we should look at him. And he had no beauty that we should desire him. We've all seen pictures of Christ, uh, you know, depictions of Christ. Some make him out to be this really attractive character. Physically, Scripture says he wasn't attractive. So if he were to appear just plain old Jesus without the glory, we probably wouldn't consider him an attractive person. That's what Scripture says. He didn't come with the advantage of beauty. He came as a regular unattractive person. I'm not saying that that's regular, but you're all, you all are attractive. So. <clears throat> okay, so Scripture is very clear that he wasn't, he didn't come with physical beauty. All right, Scripture says that he learned and he matured like a human, progressing from childhood to adulthood. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, it says, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. This passage is saying that Jesus learned how to refuse evil and choose good. That's a very human characteristic. I know you may be thinking, okay, he's, he's God in human form, and he's got all these divine abilities and powers while he's on earth, but it's, how can he learn how to refuse evil and choose good if he knows everything? We'll get to that. But it very much indicates that he grew in understanding and wisdom. He learned how to live righteously. And it says in Luke 2, verse 25, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He increased in wisdom. He increased in stature. He increased in favor. Now, God can't increase, but it says that Jesus did. So this is very much indicating his humanity. This is a human characteristic of increasing and growing in stature. Again, what we'll try to unpack that in a little bit, how that is. Scripture also indicates that Jesus was just like you and I in that he ate, he drank, and he slept just like us. He ate, he drank, and he slept. Now, granted, his sleeping abilities were pretty remarkable in that he could sleep during the middle of a storm on a boat. <laughs> Nonetheless, he, he needed sleep. He, he, he was a human like you and I. He experienced our physical weaknesses, our physical needs. It says that he often got tired and hungry. When he came in, he sat at Jacob's well, and he, right before he has the interaction with the Samaritan woman, it says in Scripture that he was wearied from his journey. 
He was physically tired. It also indicates in Scripture that often he would withdraw from the crowds in order to get rest because the crowds were overwhelming him with their requests and their demands and their expectations of him. He withdrew to get rest. He got tired. He got overwhelmed by people. Me being a strong introvert, I understand that very well. All right, he was also hungry. When he, it says that one morning he was hungry, and so he approached the fig tree looking for fruit. So Jesus got hungry. So we're seeing all these indications in Scripture that he's just like you and I in many ways. All right, now sometimes it also indicates, and this is what really can be baffling, sometimes he indic- it indicates in scriptures that he appeared not to know something. Now, last week we saw that he knew everything. He had, many times he, it was very clear indication that he knew everything. But in some instances it seems to indicate that he didn't know something. Now this can be debated, but I'll give you a few examples. When he approached the fig tree for, for fruit, he didn't know that there weren't any figs on the tree. At least it seems that way. And when he got there, he was frustrated at the tree (laughs) that there wasn't any fruit. I'm not going to get into unpacking that parable or that that story, but it it seemed to indicate that Jesus didn't realize that there wasn't any fruit on the tree when he started searching for it. It also says that he didn't seem to know when he was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says... Go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Then he says, you're right. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the one you're currently living with is not your husband. So in one moment, it seems like he doesn't know that she's married. In the next moment, he seems to know everything about her. Now, that can be debated in that he was simply saying, go get your husband. It was a cultural custom at that time that he shouldn't be talking alone with this woman, but that her husband should be there with her. So he was just acting appropriate to the culture. But it also may seem to indicate that he didn't know that in that moment that she had or didn't have a husband. But a moment later, he knows everything. What's going on? It also indicates that he didn't realize John the Baptist's death until he was told. He seems to act like it's news to him also says very clearly in Matthew 24, the famous passage, prophetic passage, that when he, in which he's talking about the future destruction of Jerusalem. He says that he doesn't, the son doesn't know, the son or the angels don't know the hour of his own return. He's saying that I don't know the hour of my own return. Only the Father in heaven knows. Jesus very clearly states, I don't know something. So we have this tension, this bit of a paradox. He knows everything, but he doesn't know some things. How does this work? It says that he wept at hearing the news of Lazarus's death. He wept. He wept like one of you and I. He, he experienced sadness and sorrow, which I'm sure God does anyway, regardless of being a human or not. But Jesus physically wept. And then it also says that he, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before his capture and his death, He was in so much stress and anguish that he sweat blood. The blood veins in his head ruptured, and he was 
sweating blood. I was, he experienced extreme stress like you and I. Fear of death, fear of suffering. At least so it seems. So, Jesus, this is a truth of the Christian faith. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, united in one person, Jesus Christ. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. It's just a fancy term, like I mentioned last week, that talks about a reality that emerges out of a union. The church has clearly taught from the early first couple centuries after Christ on down to now that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. And we need to understand what this means in order to understand how Jesus is acting both as God and man. We need to understand first that there are some specific things that this does not mean that people throughout the centuries have tried to teach to their own chagrin. He's not a blending of deity with humanity. It's not like God took the Logos, the divine word, the second person of the Trinity, and stuck him in a blender with, another, with a human being and frappe, Jesus Christ emerges. He's not a blending. He's not this new creation that comes out of this unity between a human being and, a, and God. He's 100% God united with 100% man. He's not two separate persons, which some people have tried to teach. Like there's a human being possessed with this second person of the Trinity. Each person acting according to their own natures. So you got God acting according to his nature as through Christ, and then Jesus as a separate person from God acting in his own nature. That's not what it is. There's not two persons in Christ. There's not two different minds. One person, Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. He's also not just a man. I've actually heard this teaching in my, in my lifetime from some folks in the church who understandably want to make Jesus our role model to say that, no, he was absolutely like you and I. He was a lot like you and I, but he had some advantages. He was God in human flesh. Some people try to say that this emptying and what Philippians 2 talks about is an emptying of all his divinity, that he had no divine powers on earth, and that everything that he did that seemed to be divine powers was the Father doing it through him. But this isn't true. It was Jesus himself being equal with God, accomplishing that work. So he's not just a human being without any divine abilities. He's also not just God without any human attributes or weaknesses. Some people tried to teach that Jesus was just a physical, or not a physical, was just God appearing to be a physical human being. But that denies his birth, that he was born a human being. He is one person, both God and man in a perfect unity. God took on a human soul and a body and in what we call this hypostatic union in Christ. Jesus became fully human. But he was the Logos, the Word, the second person of the Trinity from all eternity. And that same person remained the same person in Christ when he became a human being. So how does that work? Is he acting as God all the time or is he acting as a human all the time? 
the tension finds some peace in what Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church, Martin Luther, he said that sometimes Christ acts according to his divine nature, and other times he acts according to his human nature. Sometimes he acts according to one nature, and sometimes he acts according to another nature. But he has the power to do both. I know, I'm getting philosophical here. This is getting deep. This is stuff I love and enjoy. If this is going over your head, I'm sorry. But I love this stuff. So, here's my theory, and I say it's a theory because I can't... Scripture doesn't say specifically what I think this entails... But what I think is going on in Christ, what is he thinking? Is he thinking omniscient, divine thoughts at all, any given moment? Yes and no. Yes, in some moments he's thinking omnisciently. Omniscience is simply referring to God knowing everything. In some moments he's not. So in a loose analogy, it's almost like Jesus has a switch in which he can turn on his divine nature and he can turn it off. You can flip it on, flip it off for purpose, for very specific purposes. So was Jesus in the womb or as a little infant thinking about microbiology and economics and calculus? And I don't think so. Some people would say yes, fair. But I think that God, that Christ turned off his divinity in, those, in his childhood in order to grow and become, experience what we experience. But clearly, when he shows up in his ministry to us at the age of 30, and also it seems to indicate at the age of 12 that he knew so, so much that he astonished the scholars, clearly he had omniscience, knowledge of everything on certain topics. We don't, we'll never fully understand the mystery of this, but I believe that at times Christ turned off his, his divine nature, his, his omniscient thoughts in order to be like us, and other times he turned it on in order to understand all things. And it's very clear in Scripture that Jesus knew what only God could know, that he knew everything about certain topics. This is the theory. It's very much possible that he did have omniscient thoughts at all times, but he very clearly states, I don't know something. I don't know the hour of my own return. God has the ability to limit himself to knowing something. It says the Father knows, but Jesus said, I don't know. He limited himself by not choosing not to know something. This is what in theology is called the openness of God. Openness simply refers to God being able to impose a self-limitation upon himself in order to interact more openly with his creation. And the Free Methodist Church teaches this, that God is open to his creation. There are other churches that say, no, there isn't. God is not open at all, that he determines everything. And I understand where they're coming from, but I don't agree. Because his openness enables us to have the freedom of choice, the freedom of free will in order to respond to God. He doesn't determine everything you and I do. He knows what you and I will do, but he doesn't determine everything. 
He's open to us. He imposes a limitation upon himself to enable us to have that. That doesn't mean that God is thus permanently incapacitated to act in that manner. He just chooses not to in order to, to enable us to have that. And Christ is the openness of God made manifest. He became a human being just like you and I so that he could experience things from our vantage point. And so he could impose upon himself the limitations of our thoughts at times as well as switch back to his divine nature when needed. Before I move on to the crux of this, this sermon, the whole point of, of the God, well, before I move on, there's a great book if you want to read deeply on this topic, if you're super philosophical, because this book is pretty heavy reading. It's a great book. It's called The Two Natures in Christ by Martin Chemnitz. Martin Chemnitz, C-H-E-M-N-I-T-Z, The Two Natures in Christ. He was a theologian and a contemporary of Martin Luther during the Reformation. And this book is great. I love it. I encourage you to read that if you want to understand more about how the divine nature and the human nature interacted. So the whole point, I had a great discussion last week with Dorothy about why did God have to become a human being? What's, what's the reason? What's, this is the gospel. This is the truth that we hold dear. This is the good news. He became a human being for our sake. Why couldn't Jesus do it some other way? Why couldn't God save us some other way? Why did he have to become a human and die? To understand this is to understand the gospel. Hebrews gives the answer, the book of Hebrews. I love this book. Hebrews 2.17. Jot these, these uh, references down to, to go back to. If someone asks you, why did he have to become a human? Then you can pull up these passages and show them clearly what the Bible says, why he had to become a human. human Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, it says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people of the people. Hebrews 4:15. Hebrews 4:15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And finally, Hebrews 2, 9. We see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, which basically means he was made a human being, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's, that's the scriptural answer to why Jesus had to become a human being. He came in order to be merciful and faithful to us. Now you can't really be merciful to someone that 
you haven't really tried to identify with or, or understand. Mercy really becomes fully complete when you, you experience. And you're right there alongside that person. Showing them mercy. Also, it says that he came to be faithful to us. Faithfulness is really complete when you demonstrate that you're willing to do everything in order to help that person. Jesus was willing to do everything. God was willing to do everything in order to help us, including becoming one of us. Becoming one of us demonstrated his faithfulness to us. It also says he came in order to sympathize with our weaknesses. So again, we, we, you really can't sympathize with someone that you haven't actually experienced what they go through. So God, he knows what we go through. He has factual knowledge of what we go through, but he didn't have the fullness of sympathy for us until he actually experienced it as one of us. So he came to sympathize with us. He was subjected to our mortal weaknesses, except sinfulness. He didn't come with sin, because he's God, and God cannot possibly sin. So he didn't come with that disadvantage. He came with a major advantage, yet he came to experience our mortality, our weaknesses, to sympathize with us. It says he became our high priest, our mediator. What is a mediator? Mediator is someone who stands between you and someone else, and understand it has a foot in both worlds. Jesus could truly understand God because he was God. He could truly understand hum humans because he was one of us. He was both. He's the perfect mediator. Uh, the famous theologian Augustine says that it was necessary that as a mediator between God and man that he would have something similar to God and something similar to man. Lest, if he should be similar to men in every respect, he might be too far removed from God. Or if he should be similar to God in every way, he'd be too far removed from men. And thus he wouldn't be a mediator. This is why he came. He came to be a mediator. To have his foot in both worlds. And he came to undergo the suffering of human death. To taste death for everyone, it says. In order to be a substitute for us. This is the gospel. Scripture says that he, came, he died for our sins and rose again on the third day. That's the gospel. He came to suffer human death for everyone as a substitute. Here's the gospel in its simplicity. We've all sinned. I hope you all know this, and don't, don't be offended if I'm just rehashing what you already know, but this is important. This is our faith. If you don't know this, you need to understand this. We've all sinned, and all sin deserves punishment. That's how God, God's justice works. Sin deserves a retribution, a punishment. And that punishment for sin is death. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. So if our punishment is death, the only way out of it is if someone steps in our place and takes that punishment for us because that punishment has to happen. But God is willing to take that punishment away from someone if someone steps in and dies for it in your place. 
But no human being, no just any individual human being could die for everyone in the world. We can't, be, I could never take that death that we deserve, that all humanity deserves in everyone's place. Only God could do that. Only God had the ability to take all of it. So God had to become a human being in order to die that death, in order to save us from that death. He died for our sins. He died in our place. It's called the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He was our substitute. That's why he came and that's why he died. And you can't die a human death unless you're a human. But you can't die for the sin of all humanity if you're not God. So, he does this, and he rises from the dead, demonstrating that he's God and has power over death, and that he's conquered death. And that death really can't hold you now because I have power over it. That's what the resurrection is. It's the demonstration of his power. Saying, no, really, I just died for you, and I just demonstrated that now I... I've taken that death away because I rose back from the dead. So he gives us a choice. He gives us a choice. Some Christians teach that we don't have a choice. I understand that, but we as the free Methodists believe that he gives us a choice to either accept his sacrifice, his substitutionary death in our place, and if we accept that, it satisfies the punishment that we deserve. Or we can refuse that sacrifice, spurn and reject the death of Christ and his substitutionary atonement. And what does that make us? That makes us guilty, and we deserve eternal death. See, this is the good news of the gospel. Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, both, 100% God, 100% man, became a human being, died in our place for our sins, rose from the dead, demonstrating his power in order to save us from death. And he gives us a choice. That choice doesn't earn you the salvation. That choice is simply a surrender to him. It's not a work. That choice is surrendering and saying, I believe it, I accept it, I receive it. I don't deserve it, but I'm not going to reject it and treat it with contempt. I accept it, and therefore you are saved if you believe that. That's what salvation is. You are saved. That though you will physically die, you will come back in the resurrection. You will be with Christ and you will come back in the resurrection and live in fullness of life for all eternity with Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus did it all for us. He did everything for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. All we got to do is surrender to that. Now, that's good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news. Some people take that term, good news, and they preach another gospel. But I wouldn't even call it another gospel. It's not another good news. What they preach is bad news. That you got to do it. That you've got to earn it. That maybe if you're good enough, maybe if you do enough good, you'll make it to heaven. Maybe God will accept you if you do enough. You have to do it. There's a lot of religions on earth that teach that. In fact, just about all of them. That's bad news. Because if you've got to earn it, 
at any given moment, you never know if you're going to make it or not. The good news is, of the true gospel, the good news is that Jesus did it, and you can know by surrendering to him that he has truly died in your place and that you are now free from that punishment. So if you don't believe this, believe in it. Surrender your life to Christ. Accept it. That no matter what you have done in life, no matter what sins you have committed, Jesus has forgiven you and has died in your place to take that punishment. Accept it, and you will live forever with Christ. You will become a part of his family. You will live in his kingdom. This is truth. And you need to share this with the world. This is the gospel that they need desperately to hear. In our culture, we try to we start watering down the gospel when we really try to explain the gospel in super, super relevant terms in order to get it into people's minds. We've got to make it really understandable to them. But it's really the gospel in all of its simplicity. You just have to share who Christ is. He's God and he's man. And these are hard topics. You don't have to get into all those details necessarily of analyzing the Trinity. But you just got to present his identity, present exactly why, why he came and what he came to do, and share with them that if you believe this, if you surrender yourself, that you can be saved from this death. We don't want people out in the world who don't know this to not know it because we're too afraid to share it with them. And I admit, even as a missionary overseas, I can be sometimes pretty lax, pretty scared in sharing the gospel to others. But they need to hear this. And if they reject it, they reject it. That's between them and God. But you need to share this with them. They need to hear this. So I close with the passage of Philippians 2, verse 9. Please rise again, if you're able. Jesus humbled himself, and now here he's fulfilling that passage in Daniel 7. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen.